pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we gather, Lord, in that name, in the name of Jesus. Lord, as we, um, since we last gathered, Lord, we celebrated the fact that you loved us enough to die for us. And Lord, you rested on Saturday, you rose again on Sunday, and uh, showed us, Lord, with our own eyes that we could rise again from the dead. Lord, you displayed your power that is so great that not even death could hold you down. So God, as you share that power with us and you uh, showed us that there's going to be reasons uh, for us to um, just love you and reasons to follow you that don't stop at the grave, Lord. They continue on into eternity. So we thank you for that. And God, uh, just help us to receive from you the purposes that you put in your word in this very chapter tonight. So we submit our hearts and our minds to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so <clears throat> we went through verse 8 of chapter 11 uh, the last time we met. <clears throat> Excuse me. So in verse 9, um, you know, we're getting these first indications of Solomon's heart turning away from God. Um, I brought you to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 17, where it forbids just about every single thing that Solomon's doing at the end of uh, chapter 10. And then uh, he goes on into the beginning of chapter 11, uh, not just adding gold and silver, or I should say multiplying gold and silver, multiplying wives, multiplying horses, even specifically those imported from Egypt that are specifically forbidden in Deuteronomy 17. And we see that he's just kind of lost contact here with God. So we pick it up in verse 9 of chapter 11. It says, So the Lord became angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Hear that uh, condemnation? God appeared to a man twice, who now turns his heart away from the Lord. And it commanded him concerning this thing, they should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Now, <clears throat> so you hear this language of God is going to tear away uh, the kingdom uh, from Solomon. Now, this, um, this imagery of tearing away, the, uh, you hear the opposite language in some very good stories in the Bible about uh, clinging. So uh, God is here going to tear away from Solomon the very thing that he's clinging to, which becomes the list of foreign wives and foreign gods and, and um, gold and silver and horses and all these things that he's now becoming identified with. It's what he's clinging to. So in probably the most significant uh, story in the Bible about uh, what you're clinging to uh, is in the book of Ruth. And I want to go to Ruth chapter 1 for just a moment. And I want you to see a dynamic that's going to take place that speaks a lot into who we are and speaks a lot into why we're getting the results in life that we're getting. It's going to speak a lot into who we are, and it's going to speak a lot into why we're getting the results that we're getting. So, in Ruth chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 14, this is after uh, Naomi and her husband had gone out of Bethlehem to Moab to seek food, and God had withheld rain and food from, from Bethlehem because of sin. And now God has uh, revisited Bethlehem and given them water and crops. So Naomi's going to go back. But her two daughters-in-law that married her, her two sons, but then her two sons have died. So now they're widows. Uh, they are going to come back with Naomi to Bethlehem. But she encourages them not to because there's no reasonable way Jewish men would marry these Moabite women. So she tells them to stay in Moab to find husbands. 
And that's where we pick it up in verse 14. It says, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So now, just like Solomon's clinging to these, these uh, false uh, gods, these wives, these foreign wives, as he's clinging to uh, his, his riches, <coughs> and God's got to tear it away from him now. Now he's got to tear it away from him. Um, here you see uh, this language says, Orpah is doing something different from her sister Ruth. Orpah hears about, hey, you'll probably not find a husband in, in uh, Bethlehem, stay here in Moab. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to stay. But it says, but Ruth clung to her, and she said, look, and Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, now listen to Ruth's quote, because this is what clinging looks like, and we're going to talk about this uh, a little bit more. And so I want you to kind of get a picture here. Okay? So Ruth clings. It says, uh, Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you. It is what clinging looks like. Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. Now, first of all, Complete identity, you, you obtain complete identity with that which you're clinging to. You obtain the identity of that which you're clinging to. So what does that look like in Ruth's picture? Well, it says, where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. So they're almost become indistinguishable uh, from what she's clinging to. Where you, your God will be my God. Where you die, I'll die, and there I'll be buried. So she says... Um, that she's going to follow after the same Lord. Her God's going to be her God. They're going to share the same God. And then she says, the Lord do to me, and you can see in your Bible, it's all capital letters. That means she's using the covenant name of God. She's She sees herself as part of this, this covenant. Um, and she's obtained the identity of that which she's clinging to. Okay. So Naomi could always say, I'm a follower of Yahweh. Well, guess what Ruth is saying here? So am I. Well, then I live in this land. What's Ruth going to say? So will I. So it's all of these uh, similarities that show kind of like a chameleon that you obtain the identity to that which you're clinging to. And then in verse 18, it says, when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. In other words, she stopped trying to talk her out of it. Why? She was determined. See, clinging requires determination, doesn't it? You just don't cling accidentally to something. Clinging is a very intentional uh, determined um, choice that you're making to be identified with something, the thing that you are clinging to. So, um, <clears throat> so you see back in, in Kings with Solomon, God has to tear out of his hands what he's clinging to. Same with our lives. God has to tear out of our hands that which we decide to cling to that's not of his will. Now, I am going to give you some quotes from a great um, patriarch of the faith. His name is uh, Gregory of, of uh, Nisa. And Gregory uh, talks about this a little bit. He says, salvation, salvation becomes a dynamic, a dynamic move away from self-centered to other-centered if the other is Christ. So with self, here's... So the going unsaved to save, the unsaved goes from what is it? What is in it for me? Okay, the saved person says, "What is it about my life that's in it for him? You know, what am I doing for him?" And he says, "As creation, and I want you to see if you can follow this picture because it's really quite beautiful if you can follow it." He says, "Creation is one big movement of birth, death, and rebirth. <laughs> Think of your cells in your body. You are reproducing." millions of cells every second they're dying and they're being reborn every second okay so uh gregory says creation is one big movement of birth death and rebirth it's a symphony of movement 
And when we become stagnant, we cease to participate in the symphony and our cycle stops then, not at birth, death, rebirth, but it just becomes birth and death. It's why Satan wants to isolate us and stagnate us. He wants, he wants you to feel alone and he wants you un unproductive, alone and unproductive. That's where you know Satan's got you, okay? Nobody can know your problems, okay? Nobody can understand what you're going through is what Satan wants to tell you. He wants you alone. This would be embarrassing for you to bring up. You can't share this with anybody, okay? That's Satan's work in your life. Um, creation is a movement. It's a symphony of movement. And when we become stagnant, we cease to participate in it. When we become isolated, we cease to participate in it. When we make excuses of why we're not doing the supposed to's in our life, Satan's work in your life. So Gregory goes on to say, to say that things are in constant motion is to say that they are pulled by something outside of themselves. So if, if life and movement and even your cells, everything's in this constant motion, that means it's being pulled by something. Something's orchestrating, something's creating all this motion. It's, it's one of Thomas Aquinas' uh, arguments for the existence of God is, is the great mover argument that that there has to be a, a first unmoved mover because we know nothing uh, goes into motion unless it's put into motion by something else. Well, Gregory's noticing that everything's in motion. Okay, everything's in motion because it's a part of life and life becomes a symphony. And um, so he goes on to say, the created, the created dies every moment to be reborn the next. And again, think of ourselves. If it ceased to change, it would cease to exist. So when one tries to locate a stable, unchanging self, in other words, when people say, I just want to find myself, I'm just trying to find who I am, find myself, they're, trying, they're, they're saying there's this stable, there's this um, consistent, stable being that I am, and I just got to find it. But what that's missing is it's a moving target all the time. It's a moving target. Okay? Not, nothing is to be stagnant or without motion so um when we when we when we try to locate a stable unchanging self within ourselves we don't approach life we're actually approaching death so it's not a matter of finding yourself gregory says this we are music set to music isn't that interesting we are music <laughs> set to music you know i always wondered um why music has the effect that it seems to have on everybody I mean, it has tremendous, tremendous effect. Um, tremendous amounts of money and research go into what music to play over the speakers in a mall to, to get you comfortable standing there and shopping and spending money and making it where you don't want to leave. And um, <clears throat> music, uh, every movie has tremendous amounts of effort and money and time going into what is the score of the, of the movie. And it's going to set the mood. And, the actors don't even have to portray a lot of the emotion because the music's going to give you the emotion that's going on in the background and so forth. <clears throat> and um, music dictates culture largely. That's why people freaked out when uh, Elvis Presley started moving his hips, right? And what follows? Sexual revolution, right? I mean, music really has impact. It really has power. And um, Gregory of Nyssa is saying, we are music set to music. It's this constant symphony, constant motion. And he says human existence is a constant. Here, here's where he's getting into uh, where, where Solomon's at here. He says human existence is a constant reach for something. And all this motion, there's this constant grasping, constant reach for something. And he says it's the reality. When, when we find truth and reality, the thing that we're always grasping for boils down to a search and a reach to grasp the beauty of God. Uh, David seemed to pen this in Psalm 27, 4. He says, I desire nothing more than to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. His greatest desire is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. So now I want to take where we're at right now, this idea of, of motion and music and symphony and this idea of um, um, what we're clinging to um, <coughs> And now we get this idea that <clears throat> um, desire uh, becomes the, uh, Gregory of Nisa will say, Gregory becomes the energy of this movement. 
So in all of this movement, what, what's energizing all this movement? It's desire. Okay. So now what are you going to cling to that which you desire most, correct? You're going to cling to that which you desire most. Now, so desire is the energy of our movement, and so it becomes the core of our being. Creation is a symphonic and rhythmic compilation of diversity, of motion and rest. It's a song. Our lives become a song praising God, a true primordial archetypal music. Desire was, is what provides our direction, either within the symphony or as sour notes outside the symphony. So in other words, if you see life as a symphony and all of our movement becomes the notes of that symphony and our desires are directing those movements, right? We go in the directions of our desires. So now when we are participating in this life, death, rebirth, movement, symphonic movement, it's creating this harmony, this symphony, and then desire is what's driving it. It's the energy that's making all the motion. But now, what is your desire? Because now if you, pick, if you take sin and make sin a part of the picture, sin becomes a movement against life, against these motions of, of life and the symphony of life and so forth. And it becomes the sour note that you're hitting. It's the note that the, the sheet of music that God writes for your life he didn't write that note in. You're hitting your own note. It's your own desire. Something outside the plan of God. You're creating your own music and so forth. But because God has set a cycle of life, death, and rebirth, what are you canceling out when you hit your own notes? You're canceling out the rebirth part. You're only going through cycles of life and death. And things stagnate. And, they, and, and the motion stops. And you become isolated. Okay. So... What, what, your, what the health of a saved person becomes then is monitoring what your greatest desires are. Now, what do you think the Bible says your greatest desires ought to be? What should you love beyond anything? Because he wrote the music. Okay. He, he, he made the sheet of music that your, your life is on. So the, the only way for your symphony to be played is for you to play according to the notes that God has written into your life. Okay? You go off of those notes, you're hitting sour notes. Nobody likes listening to that. There's no health in that. And evil uh, rears its ugly head. So, Gregory continues, Evil is that purely primitive nothingness that lies outside creation's motion towards God and never stands in relation to the infinite, but is always in an impossible attempt at, at an ending. A constant breaking of the waves of being upon an uninhabitable shore. The ceaseless cessation of time. But evil, he says, is not what decenters us. Okay, so you can't say, this evil came in my life, so I'm off-center. Because the idea that's being produced here is that it, everything's a moving target. Okay, everything's a motion. Everything's a symphony. So there is no real center it's it's what tempts us to gain our gain our centering on the still and the lifeless things of life in other words when we centering is stagnating is what gregory's saying when when people say i want to find myself okay i need to be centered there's some probably good intentions in that but he's saying you're missing the cycle life death rebirth what happens you cancel out rebirth and it's just life and death and you could be alive in the cycle of life and death but it's stagnant, and there's signs that show you you're not participating in the symphony type of thing. So think of Adam and even the garden for a second. Um, of any tree in the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat. For on the day of you, you eat of it, the Hebrew says, dying you shall die. Dying you shall die. Okay. Now, did they eat of it that day? Did they die that day? There has to be some sense they did, right? In what sense did they die? Well, he says, dying, you shall die. Something dies. And as we are created in the triune image of God, we are the image of that trinity, we see that we're triune in the sense of body, soul, spirit. Now, what died in Adam and Eve that day? 
spirit. The rest of the Bible talks about being spiritually dead, correct? Jesus will say you have to be born again in the spirit, okay? So they go from triune, body, soul, spirit, to binary, just body and soul. So what did they do? They went from the cycle of birth, death, rebirth, to just birth, death. Right? You're canceling out the spirit, which is where the rebirth is. Okay? Why do you think so many people that are born again, they hear the Bible and they respond to it? And people twice as smarter than sitting next to them don't. Because somebody has the spirit reborn in them. And it's that spirit that's tapping into God's spirit that's getting lit up through the Bible. So Paul will write that who can know the mind of man except for the spirit of that man? Okay, so who can know my mind but my spirit? You want to know what's on my mind? Guess who you ask? Me. Okay? So I know what's on my mind. The spirit of me knows what's on my mind. So the same is true with God. Nobody can know the mind of God except for the spirit of God. But guess what he does with that spirit? Makes you alive with it, that very spirit, right? So that you can know the mind of God. So when you read the Bible and you go, I get it, it's because you know the mind of God. And people that can be literally twice as greater in IQ of you go, I don't get this. It's ridiculous and silly to me because they can't know the mind of God. They don't have the spirit of God in them. So likewise this, evil enters in and it creates the chaos of sour notes in the symphony. Okay. Now, that was a, a departure into a lot of philosophy. How many of you wish you didn't come <laughs> okay. Listen, I find it. I was, I was very helped by it. So if nothing else, I enjoyed. It. So I, <laughs> I got something out of this today for sure. All right. <clears throat> All right. So I have no idea where I am on the screen. Okay. Looks like I'm over here. Fourteen. <clears throat> okay. Now. We enter into the adversaries of Solomon. Now, 14, though, the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon. Hadad the Edomite. Oh, wait, I had more to say about this claim. I apologize. Hold on one second. Um, I want to make sure you catch this main idea because I want to make a point about it. What is, why is Solomon going to die at the end of this chapter? Why does it seem like, this is chapter 11, just in chapter 3, he became king, wisdom, nobody greater before or since, all this stuff, all this great language, and then he basically builds a temple and dies in shame and disgrace, all right? So what, what happened? And what I was suggesting to you, it's what he's clinging to. It's what he's clinging to, that God now has to tear away from him. So in Matthew chapter 7, I want to give you this picture of clinging that Jesus gives about what you're clinging to matters in your trials. So Matthew 7, 24, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man. Okay, now think of Solomon. That's what his claim to fame was, right? But now here's what Jesus is saying. Uh, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. <clears throat> now, was there anything different about what happened to these two houses? The same exact trial came upon them, right? Same exact trial, and you see one stand and one fall, and what was the difference between them? Foundation. The foundation. What is a foundation? It's that which the house clings to, right? The house is either clinging to rock or is clinging to sand, correct? The house that clings to rock, the same exact trial, stands through it, when it clings to sand, same exact trial, collapses it. Now you're going, uh, so what exactly is this rock and sand? We know the rock is Christ. 
and listen to how Paul puts it. I'm going to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul talks about the same foundation, the, the same building illustrations with foundation. I'm going to start in verse 11, 1 Corinthians 3, 11. It says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, so he's saying, there's only one foundation you can lay, it's Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day, you see capital D day, what does that mean? It's judgment day. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. So here's judgment by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work with which he has built on endures, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Now, this is the believer's judgment. Okay, This is the believer's judgment. We call it the Bema Seat Judgment. And what is it saying? These are the people whose foundation is Jesus Christ. So when you lay a foundation for your life, you lay a foundation for your life. And how many varieties of houses are out there? Innumerable, right? So there's all sorts of ways to building on them. But can you have any creativity or differentiation in the foundation? No. There's one foundation, Jesus Christ, correct? That is the only foundation that you can build on. That's the rock. Doesn't he call himself the rock? He's the rock on which you build your foundation. Now... When you build on that foundation, it says now you can build with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hair, straw. But does it matter which you choose? Yes, it does. Why? Because your work as a Christian on your judgment day is tested by fire. Now, what does fire do to gold, silver, and precious stones? It purifies, gets rid of everything impure in them and makes them more valuable. Okay? So you'll, that's the picture of your glorification. You come out way better than you went into your judgment. You come out of your judgment way better than you went into it. If you build with wood, hay, or straw, what's left when it's tested by fire? Nothing. It says, but you're saved. Why are you saved if you built with wood, hay, and straw and all gets burnt up? It's your foundation. Your foundation is there, right? It says everything you built is gone, but your foundation is there. Okay? It's Jesus Christ. So it says you're saved, but as one barely escaping the flame. And that's... What I, I hope none of the none of you have a description like that of your salvation. I don't want on your tombstone as one escaping the flame, you know, type of thing. Hopefully, you'll get the well done, good and faithful servant. Now, so <clears throat> before I go back to Matthew seven, where I'm going next, I just want to read these uh, last two verses in First Corinthians three. With that, it says, "So do you not know that you're the temple of God?" Listen, we're talking about you, you being a house, right? Your foundation is Christ. Now, what what are your works? What are your works? Foundation has to be Christ. You're saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ, correct? <clears throat> That's your foundation. You're saved. Now, it becomes your works. Is it gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hair, straw? Is what you're doing with your life valuable or not? God is pleased to reward the sacrificial things you do in life that benefit others that are in his name and for his glory, okay? He's pleased to reward those. So then he says, don't you know that you're in the temple of God? And who built you? God. And what did he use? What remember we read Solomon building the temple? The best of everything went into that temple, right? And this says you are God's temple. Think of how he builds temples. Okay? You're the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Remember we talked about the Spirit is what makes you different from the non-believer, correct? Okay, the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are now. Solomon. There's questions that people have asked me in the last two weeks. Where is he today? Is he in heaven? Is he in hell? Sure started off as looking like a heaven-bound person, didn't he? Sure ended like a hellbound person. Wait till we hear all the gods that he's going to be worshiping in a second. And um, I'm going to let you chew on that for 21 minutes. <laughs> As we go back to Matthew 7. Okay? Because here's what I want to do. We talked about 
you build on the rock instead of the sand, you can withstand trials and storms. The storms will come and they'll go and you'll be standing. You build on sand, not on Christ. Christ is not the sand. Then the same storms come and you're, you're collapsed. You're, you're not handling it well. Uh, you're not doing well at all. You're hitting sour notes in your symphony, aren't you? Okay. Now, <clears throat> is it serious? Well, 1 Corinthians 3 said, if your foundation's not the rock, of Christ, then you're not saved. All right. If it's anything else, you're not saved. The, the saved have, if nothing else in common, what they have in common is the same exact foundation. Right? Is Jesus Christ. That means He's the one you're clinging to. He's the one that think of the word clinging. Okay. It, it, it's like your fingernails are dug in. You're not going anywhere. Think of Ruth. Wherever you go, Lord, I'm going. Where you where you live, I live. Okay, um, um, your people are my people. Okay, it's like you lose your identity in Him. You become so assimilated with Him, so you lose your identity to Him. So now, if your foundation is not Christ, <clears throat> this says this. Go go up to uh, verse twenty-one of Matthew seven. People have categorized these verses as the scariest in all of Scripture. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. As many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's a judgment day picture Jesus is painting. And who is he speaking to to say depart? Those that said, Lord, Lord. Okay. Another part of the gospel will say this. Jesus will say, why do you call me Lord if you don't do what I say? He's saying that is hypocrisy. That is contradiction. You cannot call him Lord and not do what he says. If you call him Lord, you must do what he says. Um, and many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, uh, didn't I do this and do that in your name? It's even scarier, right? Did them in your name. But what's the picture that's being painted here? They're saying Lord, but if you looked at their foundation, it can't be the Lord, can it? Can this happen to somebody whose foundation is the Lord? No. Okay. <clears throat> all right, so, um, all right, back to 1 Kings. Back to Solomon. All right. <clears throat> 14. Now the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was a descendant of the king of Edom. Now he's going to mention three adversaries to King Solomon in the rest of this chapter. Three adversaries. And I want to show you what they have in common before I talk about them. Here you have Hadad the Edomite. Anybody know who founded the nation of Edom? Esau. Okay, Esau, the brother of who? <coughs> brother of Jacob, right? Okay, so Esau founds the nation of Edom. They become a wicked nation, the Edomites. They oppose Israel almost constantly. And now we have Hadad, the Edomite, that's going to oppose Solomon. Now, in the New Testament, we have an, a king, and it says he's Edomian, which is Edomite, and it's King Herod. The Edomian. So Jesus has a similar adversary, doesn't he? Okay. It says he was descended of the king of Edom, for it happened when David was in Edom, and Joab, the commander of the army, had gone up to bury the slain after he had killed every male in Edom, because for six months Joab remained there with all Israel till he had cut down every male in Edom. That Hadad fled to go to Egypt, he and certain Edomites of his father's servants with him. Hadad was still a little child. Then they arose from Midian and came to Paran, and they took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house, a portion for food for him, and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him as wife the sister of his own wife, that is, the sister of Queen Taphanes. Then the sister of Taphanes bore him Genubah, his son, whom Taphanes weaned in Pharaoh's house. So Genubath was in Pharaoh's household among the sons of 
Pharaoh. Now, that's adversary one. Well, we're still in adversary one. So when Hadad heard in Egypt that David rested with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me depart that I may go to my own country. Then Pharaoh said to him, but what have you lacked with me that suddenly you go to your own country? So he answered, nothing, but do let me go anyway. So there's adversary number one. Now, the word for adversary in Hebrew is, um, it's the word that we get in Greek for Satan. He's the adversary. Okay. So um, we're going to get three Satans here in Solomon's life. Three adversaries. And this is uh, adversary number one. And it ends without a lot of information. Uh, it's just Hadad saying, um, uh, Pharaoh saying, why do you, listen, you have everything you want here in Egypt. Why, why do you want to go to this country? And he says, he goes, what have you lacked in this country? He says, nothing, but let me go anyway. And that's all you hear from him. Now, how would you feel if you were Solomon reading this? And Hadad is being raised up as your enemy. And you don't know, you know he's coming, but you don't get any more information. It's just like I have this enemy, and this enemy is just going to be there somewhere, and I don't know where, and I don't know when, all these things. What kind of emotions is that going to raise in you if you um, know you have an enemy, you know, whether it's substances, whether it's a person at work, whether whatever, somebody wants to sink you, okay? That'd be parent, you'd be paranoid, right? Looking over your shoulder all the time, not knowing when and where it's going to happen. It's like the person says to you, sleep with one eye open, you know, that type of thing. And it's his paranoia. So, you know, I'm thinking about Solomon reading this, and he's going, man, God's reason to pay that, come after me. And now he's getting permission from Pharaoh, and now I'm, I'm, I'm allowed to hear this conversation. He's going, let me go to my country. Why? What do you lack here? Nothing. Let me go anyway. And you don't even hear the answer. You're like, is he coming? Is he not coming? Do I need to be looking over my shoulder constantly? What is the deal here? Listen, it's that paranoia. Um, Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no one is pursuing. Can you imagine that? That type of paranoia. Okay, so when you're evil, you're wicked. It's like, how would you feel if you're a fugitive from the law every time you heard a cop siren? Right? Cop siren could be going anywhere, and all of a sudden you hear it, you're like, you're a mess, right? You're a total mess. Why? Hey, the wicked flee when no one's pursuing. It produces this paranoia, uh, looking over your shoulder, that uh, type of thing. All right. Um, adversary number two, verse 23. God raised up another adversary against him, Rezin, the son of Eliada, who fled from his lord, Hadadezer, king of Zobah. And he gathered men to him and became captain over a band of raiders when David killed those of Zobah. And they went to Damascus and dwelt there and reigned in Damascus. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, besides the trouble that Hadad caused, and he abhorred Israel and reigned over Syria. Now, where Hadad is an is a uh, Edomite, descendant of Esau, here you have a Gentile adversary now, overseas. Now, when we talked about Solomon and Gentiles last week, right? The sea has opened up to Solomon, where he's using the sea constantly. Gentile kings are helping him build the temple and are benefiting him greatly. And all these things are happening with Gentiles. And, um, <clears throat> and now we have a Gentile um, being a part of uh, an adversary. Now, I likened the Edomites. Who was raised up against, who was raised up against Jesus that was an Edomite? King Herod. So now we have Gentile. Now who are the Gentiles that rose up against Jesus? I mean, there are many, but what's the major group that helped actually get him killed? The Romans, right? So now you have this category of, of <coughs> that the Romans are in. And then we get our third um, adversary in 26. Well, first of all, as far as Gentiles go, <coughs> Solomon makes great strides, makes peace with Hiram. Remember Hiram? sent him everything he needed uh, to build the temple and shipped it to him on, on, the, on the waterways and all this stuff. And then, the, and then uh, one of our chapters ended with Solomon uh, using the sea to open up 
his kingdom to Gentiles. And it was this great picture. But now you have a Gentile that doesn't benefit Solomon. And he's an adversary. He's an enemy. Okay? So now an enemy rises up from Gentile land that doesn't benefit Solomon. And he goes without notice of Solomon. And now he's being raised up just like, just like um, Hadad is ri rising up. And you don't know when he's coming. Now with all this Gentile attention Solomon gives to people that benefit him, here's one that's not benefiting him, doesn't get Solomon's attention, and he's being able to be raised up as an adversary. So uh, 26, then Solomon's servant Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite from Zareda, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. And this is what caused him to rebel against the king. Solomon built the Milo. Anybody remember what I said that was? The landfill. Yeah. And repaired the damages to the city of David, his father. The man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him the officer over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. Now it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, met him on the way and he had clothed himself with a new garment and the two were alone in the field and Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces and he said to Jeroboam take for yourself 10 pieces for thus says the Lord the God of Israel behold I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give 10 tribes to you but he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and worship Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. There's going to be a Sidonian that's going to rise up in a few chapters. Anybody know her name? It's going to haunt Israel. Jezebel. Very good. Kamosh, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon. And they have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes and keep my statutes and my judgment as did his father David. However, I'll not take the whole kingdom out of his hand because I've made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I'll take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you, 10 tribes. And to his son, I'll give one tribe that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I've chosen for myself to put my name there. Anybody doing the math here? What is that? Yeah, we keep getting 11 tribes name, right? What's wrong with that? Okay, well, the Levites are priests. That's one of the, the, the issues is the Levites kind of aren't a traditional tribe. They're a tribe that has to be a tribe of the tribes to serve as a priest. So that makes, there's no, nobody has a, a sure explanation. This is all the information we get on why it's 10 and 1. Some say Benjamin kind of gets absorbed up in Judah. Those are the two southern kingdoms that don't go to Jeroboam. Um, Jeroboam gets the other ten. He doesn't get Judah or Benjamin, which are the southern tribes. And Judah almost totally encircles Benjamin. So it might just be kind of included in that. Um, and some say it's just too insignificant compared to Judah that it doesn't get mentioned. But it should be numbered, for heaven's sake. But, um, yeah, okay. Uh, Verse 37, so I will take you and you shall reign over all your heart desires and you shall be king over Israel. Then it shall be, if you heed all that I command you, it's like Solomon can give him the same speech, right? If you knew Jeroboam was getting these promises from God, he goes, listen, I know the speech. If you do all that he commands and walk in his ways and don't worship other gods, then he's going to bless you and you're going to be king, you know, and your children after you forever. Right? It's the same speech. It's just nobody can find disobedience in that. Nobody can keep the symphony going. Nobody can um, uh, check their desires. Nobody's able to check their desires the right way. Then it shall be if you heed that all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, that I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you and I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam but Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. All right, so you're getting people put into these categories here, Solomon and Jeroboam. Um, Jeroboam is given by God the authority to be king of Israel, but not in Solomon's day, right? 
When Solomon's done, then you're going to be king. Isn't that exactly what happened to David? When Saul is done, then you're going to be king, right? Now, <clears throat> um, and, but Solomon seeks to kill Jeroboam. What does that make Solomon like? King Saul, right? Still chases him, chases down David to kill him all the time. Okay? Um, all right. Now, the rest of the Acts of Solomon, all that he did in his wisdom, are they not written in the books of the Acts of Solomon? And the period that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. Then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. Now, so we talked about, <clears throat> we talked about what are you clinging to? It has to do with your desires. Your desires are the energy and that, that create the movement of your symphony. Okay? So now you got to check your desires, don't you? If they're in harmony with God, then your life's going to be in harmony with God, and you're going to be the beautiful symphony throughout your life. Um, evil is when your desires become that which are not written on your sheet of music. It's, it's your own music that you're trying to write. And that's why when people say, I'm trying to find myself, it always catches me as trying to rewrite the song that was written for me because I'm not liking the song some, for some reason. And, <clears throat> and I want to finish in Psalm 73 and, and uh, have Psalm 73 address this for me here. Um, psalm 73 is the first psalm not written by David. It's actually written by Asaph. It composes the third book of the book of Psalms. And... It's become one of my favorites because how many of you heard me speak or rant or something about church architecture and needing visual reminders like stained glass windows and steeples and, and those things that help your heart to go, this place is different, you know, this place um, is a house of God and all of this. We need those things. And I saw a line in Psalm 73 that backed it up and I was hallelujah, dancing in my den, all this stuff. And then I just looked at the rest of the psalm and go, hey, the rest of it's pretty good too. And um, it taught me a lot, this psalm, so I want to share this with you. And I share it at the end of Solomon's life. Why? Because if you were presented with all of the gold, 666 talents of gold, each talent being between 30 and 80,000 pounds of gold, and you have 666 of these 30,000 to 80,000 pounds of gold, that'd be pretty spectacular. Right, that'd be a lot to say nothing of all the other things that made him wealthy. Um, <clears throat> or if your <clears throat> next door neighbor won the lottery and these 666 talents of gold were dropped at their doorstep. Do you know you probably struggle to have your heart go, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> that might not be your truest emotion at the time, correct? It'll be the words that come out of your mouth, but it's not exactly going to be the feeling in your heart, is it? Uh, how many of you have already heard these three words in your head since I've said this? Why not me? All right? Okay? All right? So it's very hard to be happy for other people genuinely, isn't it? Okay? Just very genuinely. Now, that's what Asaph is struggling with. He's looking at the wealthy. And there's none wealthier than King Solomon. So let's, let's talk about the fall of Solomon here. And let's talk about... Um, if your rich, 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 rich neighbor went bankrupt, would that be what brought a smile to your face? Would that be what made you happy in that moment? Um, especially if your rich neighbor used his wealth in very indiscretionable ways. Um, very much wrong notes in his uh, symphony. So... That's what's happening to Asaph. In verse 1, um, Asaph says, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, you see the contrast? He's good to the pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I'm getting jealous of these well-to-do people, right? getting jealous of them, okay? For there are no pangs in their death. He's looking, he's saying, for some reason death doesn't hurt them, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men. They could buy their way out of predicaments, right? Nor are they plagued like other men. 
Therefore, pride serves as her necklace, violence covers them like a garment. A proverb just came to my head, I'm going to paraphrase it because I'm not going to get it right word for word. But it says that a rich man can ransom himself out of trouble, but a poor man is never under that threat. Okay? So you get, you get jealous of the rich, and you go, like he's saying, they can just buy their way out of trouble, but the trouble they're buying their way out of, the poor never get into that trouble. Who wants to kidnap a poor person, right? Who wants to kidnap a poor person, right? So you don't have to ransom the poor person. But the rich got to worry about their kids getting kidnapped because then they could be ransomed, right? So he's saying, be careful what you're envious of. Their eyes bulge with abundance. So they're seeing and they're wanting. They have more than the heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly, who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain. You say, what's the use of me walking holy? If they're prospering so much, and they're living ungodly, but I don't see a consequence for them. <clears throat> then why am I cleaning my heart? Why am I purifying myself? Why am I trying to walk holy? Surely I've cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. And when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. So I'm trying to figure out, this is what the whole book of Habakkuk is about, by the way. Three chapters long. Habakkuk crying out to God about, look at these pagan nations around Israel, have no concern about you whatsoever. Okay, And look what they're doing, sleeping with temple prostitutes, they're sacrificing their children, they're drunken revelries all the time. Whatever they want to do, they do. They have nothing stopping them, and Habakkuk saying, and I don't see them having a consequence. What is up with that God? Okay, I'm not going to tell you the answer God gives them just yet, because Psalm 73 will answer it the same way. So, um, when I thought of how to understand this, verse 16, it was too painful for me. Verse 17 is the key. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Exactly what God says to back up. If you only understood their end, you would not be envious of them. God is saying, let the wicked have their fun. Let the wicked have their fun. Because if you knew how they ended, you would not be envious of them. Um, so why tonight's message is titled, Keep the End in Mind. Make your decisions on a daily basis about that judgment we read about in 1 Corinthians 3. Are you building with wood, hay, or straw? Are you building with gold, silver, or precious stones? Is what you're doing today matter not for you, but for the kingdom of God? It doesn't matter for the kingdom of God that you got up out of bed today. Does it matter for the kingdom of God that you opened your mouth and spoke to people today? Or was it just for you? It says, until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. He says, surely you set them in slippery places. Listen, it went from being envious of them. Look at their lives. They have no issues. They have no problems. To now, he went into the sanctuary of God. Remember I was talking about the visuals? Listen, I don't care if it's your, your bedroom, your den, your church. You need somewhere that you can go. Like our little chapel at Calvary, that's a nice place to go. Big cross right there on the wall. The pews are there. A lot of times it's empty. You just go in there and you can be by yourself and pray. You need somewhere like that where you consider life through God's eyes. You go, I've been looking at my life through my eyes too long, God. I've got to stop. What do you see? How do you see it? How am I doing? How am I being? Okay? Um, <clears throat> Says, he says, you set them in slippery places. He went from, I wish I were them, to, oh my gosh, they could slip and fall at any time. I wouldn't want to be them. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation, as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors, as a dream when one awakes. So, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved. See the change of heart? How did his heart change from envious to grievous over them? He went into the sanctuary of God. 
He considered things from God's perspective. He went into a room where he went, oh, it's all about God. It's about his holiness, about who he is. And then he looked at them and he went, you guys are on a slippery slope that ends in destruction. I'm really grievous for you. I really feel bad for you. Uh, my heart was grieved. I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Why does he compare himself to a beast now? I would suggest to you because he sees the beast doing whatever they want, whenever they want to do it. And he was, he was saying, I wanted to be like that beast. I see the rich and they buy their way out of trouble. They, whatever their eyes have, they see abundance, they get it. Uh, there's no discipline in them. There's no self-control in them. Their wealth allows them to be beast-like before you. Nevertheless, I am, I am continuously with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Are you thinking about your afterwards? What about your afterward? I live this life and then afterward, what? Keep the end in mind. Tomorrow, make all your decisions based on how you will feel about that decision in the end. Okay, and the fool sees this far in front of his nose. Okay, the wise are able to move that barrier down, see all the way to the end, and now they guide their lives. Now they make their decisions. Now they figure out how they're treating people. Okay, <clears throat> um, because afterward, receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven? but you. Listen, you hear it? He just told you what he's clinging to, didn't he? What he's clinging to. What happened to his desires, the energy of his movements? What happened to his desires? They've changed completely in the psalm, haven't they? Okay, the energy of his movements, his desires changed. Now his desires are getting in harmony with God. He's seen the entire world differently. The entire world differently. C.S. Lewis's quote, I don't believe in Christianity because I've seen it. I believe the same way I've seen the sun, not because I see it, because by it I see everything else. Now he's seeing things through God's eyes and he gets it. Uh, there's none upon the earth that I desire besides you. I didn't even realize the word desire was in the psalm. Look at that. He got his desires right. Nothing he desires but God. And now you see the harmony coming to his soul. He's becoming the symphony again. Sweet sounding music to God again. It says, my flesh and my heart fail. Isn't that death? My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Listen, I want you to start noticing verses that speak of death. Flesh and heart failure is death, correct? But, reminds me of a sermon I want to write. Okay. But God is the strength of my heart that's supposed to be dead in the flesh. But he's the strength of my heart, my portion for how long? So you have to see through to the end, because that's when forever begins, is at the end. The, the fool thinks that the end is actually the end. The wise see the end as the very beginning of an endless time period. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God. Now, how many of you heard me say this? You're not saved for your purposes only. You heard me say that? And how's this thing end? I put my trust in the Lord God. Why? That I may declare all your works. The story is not just about you. God gets you into the, into the song sheet so that you can have other Tons of other musical notes alongside you that make for this harmony in the symphony. Okay, you're not saved for your purposes only. You're saved because God wants you to be a note in the symphony that allows for others to participate in the kingdom of God. So, <clears throat> um, so therefore, I have never ever done this in all the years I've been teaching Bible study. But I'm going to say this because I, I, it's got to be a half a dozen times I've said. You're not saved for your purposes only. You're saved for the purposes of so many others. So I'm going to say this. I'm going to challenge everybody in this room and everybody watching that somebody that's not here tonight, you bring next week. No, not next week. In two weeks. That would have been quite the thing, huh? That would have been quite the thing. 
Call me when I'm at dinner. Let me know how it went. You brought everybody. Um, I, and, and listen, I, it, it doesn't do anything different for me if this place is full or empty. It, I'm, Diane and I are not getting paid for this. You know that. Okay, so it's not about the numbers. It's not about anything. Okay, it's about your salvation not being about you. Okay, so I'm not going to keep saying it over and over again if I'm not going to do it myself. If I'm not going to challenge you to do it. Um, if we're going to believe what we're hearing, then let's make this about somebody else. So in two weeks, let's see if every one of you can bring somebody that's not here tonight. And who knows if that becomes a huge story for them. Who knows? Okay? But this isn't uh, just about you being at a Bible study. It's about some story that is not told yet, and nobody knows it. We gotta start writing it. All right? Amen? Amen. All right. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, um, that you so love the world, Lord, and I pray that this sanctuary becomes more accountable to the world. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't go home satisfied that we learned something and we know something more. Lord, I pray that our satisfaction comes in finding our song, Lord, what you're singing over us, and that we produce, Lord, in our lives, desires that fulfill um, all the works that you have for us to do. Lord, that with great joy, we would see your kingdom growing right before our very eyes. And Lord, those that were walking in darkness would know what light really is. So God, move in us, we pray. For Jesus' sake, for his great pleasure to be in our lives, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.